that thought that this was the one chance, the one job, the one time or opportunity to do something was keeping me stuck. Instead, I want you to think about all the potential jobs that you could have in your town, in your city, in that state that you've always wanted to move to. Those jobs are out there. So don't make your decision out of fear and scarcity, but rather with optimism and abundance. Welcome to the PA is in the show created by PAs for PAs where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Optimal team practice is the future and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. I'm Tracy Bingaman and I'm obsessed with redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like. Here you'll find the mindset shifts, systems, and processes I use to escape healthcare burnout and integrate my work into my life. Work-life balance is a myth, and an integrated life where you thrive professionally, not a balancing act, is the goal here. My mission is to help you to grow into a unicorn PA who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare, and work-optional financial freedom. The PA is in. Time marches on, and as we age, we are losing collagen at a rate of 1-2% to 2 per year. Collagen is the single most abundant protein in our bodies, and it's necessary for healthy bones, radiant skin, resilient muscles, and well-functioning joints. To combat the loss of collagen, I've been using Liquid BioCell Oral Collagen from Modere. I love this liquid collagen so much that I decided to partner with Modere to offer you $10 off your first order. Use the link in the show notes to redeem your discount today. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of The PA Is In. I'm your host, Tracy Bingaman, and today we are doing a mailbag question and answer episode. So these are questions that you guys have emailed me, sent into my direct message, messaged me on LinkedIn, and I like to answer these questions because I deeply believe that if one of us is wondering about something, more than one of us is facing a similar decision, quandary, or qualm in their life. So one question for one person means that we get to answer it on this platform, meaning that we can help other people. Continue to send me your questions. Our email is themoneypa at gmail.com. I'm at Mrs. Tracy Bingaman, or just search my name on LinkedIn for upcoming question and answer episodes. On this episode, you will hear me answer questions on everything from how to negotiate for maternity leave, preparing to return back to work after baby, deciding to take a job or not take a job that requires a move, and should you warn potential colleagues if you are part of the interview committee and you hate your job and you want to say to them, run, (laughs) is it appropriate to say that to potential colleagues? We will get into all of that in more. So first up, negotiating for maternity leave. So I had someone message me, hey, I work in a relatively small private practice. We are expecting our first baby. Help, what do I need to know in order to prepare for negotiating for maternity leave, notifying my employer? So number one, notifying your employer. Tell them whenever you feel comfortable. Uh, A lot of people wait until that first trimester, those first 12 weeks have gone by. As medical professionals, we understand that this doesn't guarantee that nothing's going to go wrong, but it's a period of time where sometimes you can keep it quiet depending on how you feel. I had to break scrub with, I actually had a miscarriage before our first son was born. And when I was early on in that pregnancy, I was super nauseous and I was in the OR and I had to break scrub because I had to be sick. So all of my OR nurses immediately knew. I didn't actually confirm with them, but 
they knew. Um, so sometimes there's things that happen that are beyond your control from a physical standpoint, but ultimately, you know your relationship with your employer. How close are you guys sort of personally, professionally? Choose when is best and most reasonable to tell them. Now, when it comes to negotiating for medical leave or maternity leave, because maternity leave is medical leave where you happen to have a baby at the start of your leave. Um, and this also could apply to surgery or helping a family member. So anything that you have sort of like it's planned, it's upcoming, it's going to require time off, not a vacation per se, although you may use paid time off for this. Those Some of these things will apply to that situation as well. So a short-term leave, a medical leave, a maternity leave. First thing, I want you to look up your short-term disability benefits. So short-term disability is an insurance policy that sometimes work fosters, sometimes they split with you, sometimes you can buy independently, um, where if you have a short-term medical thing that prohibits you from working, they will pay. Look up your benefits. Is delivery covered under short-term disability? Do they pay differently for vaginal delivery versus C-section? What percentage of your pay do they pay for how long and how often? So oftentimes this is bi-weekly paychecks, um, just like your regular paychecks. It's oftentimes a percentage of your earnings up to a certain point. So specifically, short-term disability pays you a portion of your salary in situations where it's non-job-related injury, illness, or other medical issues that prevent you from working for a limited time. So short-term, um, as opposed to long-term disability, which is something else altogether. So usually less than six months to a year in duration of illness, although it depends on your specific policy. Your plan should also have details that explain how much time off is offered um, and whether it's different for a vaginal or a cesarean section delivery. If you don't have short-term disability coverage for maternity leave or a paid parental leave at work, which if you're listening to this in the United States, we are terrible at and about, you also could be eligible to take an unpaid leave that's protected by the Family Medical Leave Act, which from now on I will just call FMLA because Family Medical Leave Act is a mouthful. So you have the short-term disability. It usually pays anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70% of your weekly earnings with a specific dollar amount cap, which you may or may not be close to depending on your salary. So what is FMLA? FMLA has been around since 1993. Didn't know that until I Googled it when researching for this answer to this question. FMLA allows employees to take job-protected unpaid leave for specific family or medical reasons. So it actually doesn't necessarily have to be you. It could be a family member. It could be taking care of a family member. FMLA was enacted so people could take unpaid leave to care for themselves or their family without worrying about their job security. So FMLA does not pay you. FMLA covers unpaid leave for specific employees. So you have to meet certain criteria. I think this is a common misconception about FMLA. You don't automatically, aren't automatically eligible for FMLA just because you live in the U.S. In order to take unpaid leave, you must have worked at your company for at least six months. You must have worked, there's a specific amount of hours. So 1,250 hours during the 12 months prior to the start of your leave. Um, so that's about 24 hours a week, comes out to just over 24 hours a week. And work for an employer that has 50 or more employees within a 75-mile radius of your work site. 
So 50 or more employees, if you work for a small private practice, might knock you out of FMLA coverage. Oftentimes, those smaller offices have a specific policy about leave, and you can, you know, sort of talk to them about how much leave you can take and sort of negotiate that. The coverage for FMLA is that you can take up to 12 weeks of unpaid leave during a 12-month period. You can do intermittent. So if you have to take a family member to treatment or you can take it, not necessarily all consecutively, and you can do a reduced schedule FMLA leave where you reduce the amount of hours you work during a given day or a week, and then that comes off your 12-week total. So it's sort of this running 12-week sort of ball of time that you can take in an adjustment. FMLA, it doesn't pay you for that time. It protects your job so that you can take the time that you need to get well or get your family well or take care of whatever you need to take care of from an illness or injury standpoint and that your job is waiting for you. It's protected during that. So that's sort of the federal protections that are in place. Then there's what is your policy at your workplace? So take a look, talk to HR if you work for a larger organization, see your employee handbook for the policy for medical or family leave at work. So knowing those policies in advance before you walk into that negotiation, super important. Also, if something is on the horizon, save up your paid time off as best you can. Don't be super militant about it where you're like, oh no, I can't take that day off for something important. But Having paid time off, whether it's like as you're returning and you're not feeling 100% or you have a new baby and they have some illnesses, having that paid time off, having that sick time in the bank will just make you sleep better at night. Consider negotiating a reduced um, schedule part-time when you come back. So easing into it. I did not do this with any of my kids. And if I could go back and do it again, I would absolutely say, can I come back two or three days a week? Can I come back shorter days at first? Can I sort of ease into it? Even if it's only a few weeks of transition, that is a big transition from being home, taking care of a new life, getting them to someone or, you know, some, some sort of care situation and getting to work. It is a lot to handle. And don't forget to think about pumping. If you work particularly in an outpatient setting where you have a schedule that they're going to block for your leave and open up upon your return before you go out, you should have them block pumping appointments. This is something I'm super passionate about. It wasn't something I was passionate about before I pumped at work for my kids. And then I realized there's a lot of misunderstanding with employers and how they sort of don't know about your federal and state rights when it comes to pumping at work. So the federal laws require that you have a place to pump at work. It is your employer's responsibility to provide that space. It has to be private. It has to have a door that locks. It cannot be a bathroom or a shared space without a door that locks. So like the like cubby that you chart in with other providers is not a private space with a door that locks. Um, they also have, they have to make reasonable accommodations for you to be able to have time to pump. So if you are a practice that double books appointments, if you're, you know, if you're scheduled every moment of your clinical time, a mid-morning pump break to be able to pump over lunch, mid-afternoon pump break, thinking about that. If you're in the operating room, that means if you have long cases, setting up someone to scrub you out or to have a room that's available and that you can get to and pump during turnover, 
inpatient rounders. That means someone covering your pager, at least for things that are acute, where you would have to run and resuscitate someone, because if you are pumping, you are indisposed for the time in which you are pumping. So access to that lactation room, having a space at every site. So if you go to multiple offices, you need a space that's not a bathroom with a door that locks and closes at every site. Your employer may not know that. So you may need to educate them and say, this is what I need, where works. And you can come with ideas, but it's not your responsibility to like outfit an office with a chair for you, right? They need to provide this place for you to be pumping. If you are going out, this is true for maternity leave or non-maternity leave and coming back and you're going to be recovering from something, a surgery, a procedure, treatment, something, Consider if you are going to have any limitations or need any accommodations when you return to work. Will you need a reduced workload? Will you need shorter days? Think about those things. I have found it's always easier to ask for more and be ready to go to full capacity sooner than it is to come back at full capacity and then realize, hey, it's too much. I can't handle this. I'm not physically capable. I'm not emotionally right. You know, whatever it is to handle the workload. So, I would be, you know, as straightforward with your employer as possible, sort of think about what you want, think about what you think you might need as far as accommodations schedule-wise when you return and talk to them. The great thing about smaller private practices is they don't have as much red tape. They don't have as much sort of bureaucracy and these policies that bigger organizations have. So sometimes you can get them to be more accommodating as you're returning from maternity leave. Also, congratulations. What a super, super exciting time. Next up, what do you do when your job did the bait and switch? So they offered you the position. They told you the hours were great. The practice was like a family and you got there and things were not exactly as promised or worse. They were nothing like they said they were going to be at all. Maybe the collaboration with your physicians isn't what you thought it would be, or the orientation that they said was going to be super robust was a joke. Possibly you're working significantly longer days, coming in earlier than expected, staying later, or seeing significantly more patients than expected. Or maybe you got there just in time for someone to go out on leave, or you started taking calls sooner than expected, or your frequency of call is way more than you were originally expecting when you took the position. First up, if you are in this situation where you feel like it was a bait and switch and what was promised to you was not what was delivered in the end, do you have it in writing? If you do, then the next thing is how can you use that written agreement, whatever you have, whether in a contract form or in an email communication, and bring it to people's attention and enforce what has been said in writing. If you don't have it in writing, how can you solve the problem? If it's workload, what do you need in order to get it to work for you so you can have reasonable days where you're seeing a reasonable amount of patients? If it's the schedule or the template, what needs to be adjusted so that you can take care of people in a reasonable time frame? And then is it something temporary and is it something that you can change? Was it expressly communicated or was it an assumption that you made based on something that someone said? So when you're in this situation and you're like, I, this was a bait and switch. This is not what I was expecting. You have to ask yourself, is this something that I can make peace with or that I need to plan to change? So if you're going to make peace with it, you have to let it go because it will eat you up otherwise. So 
can you make peace with the way things are and decide that this is a reasonable place that I can work and I can get over it? If you're on the fence about this and you're like, I don't know if this practice is worth staying. I don't know if this job is really worth it, given that it's not exactly what I thought, you know, because I took it based on a set of assumptions or a set of facts that was communicated to me. And this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. I made a guide. It's a decision framework for just this situation where you're like, I don't know if I should stay or go. I'll link it in the show notes, but it's at tracybingaman.com slash decide. Um, Take a look. It kind of walks you through a framework for saying, you know, am I going to stay or am I going to go? And the great thing about once you do that decision framework, and this should be whether you make peace or a plan to leave either way, is that it then tells you, give it six months. Give it six months to work itself out or, you know, to reevaluate in six months. Because if you have this conversation in your mind over and over, you drive yourself bananas. So either make peace and decide you're going to stay for at least six months or make a plan to change things. So it is easier for me to say that than to do it because I am not in your specific situation, but it is possible to enact change in your practice. If things are not what you expected, start moving towards a more sustainable workload schedule and environment. Start making small changes that move you towards a situation that wouldn't make you see red and feel like you got the wool pulled over your eyes. If not, start moving towards the next step in your career. So it is not a red flag to have left a job after a relatively short amount of time. And if you explain to your employer, hey, they said I was going to be working 40 hours a week and I was working 80 or 60 or, you know, they said I was going to be seeing 12 patients a day and I ended up seeing 28 on average, right? Other people will understand if you have a reasonable expectation. I will say if you have a short tenure at a place on your um, resume, be prepared on your CV, be prepared to answer a question about that in future interviews. It shouldn't freak you out. Um, just know that they may ask what happened or, you know, it wasn't a good fit and and have a way that you can professionally relay it wasn't a good fit. You don't go in guns blazing and say they lied about everything. You just say, you know, it wasn't what I expected. This is what I loved about it. This is what I learned from that position. And this is why I'm ready to move on. It doesn't have to be an emotional sort of unpacking. Save that for a different setting. Speaking of interviews, this is one of the questions I was most excited to answer. I'm part of the interview team for my group. Should I warn future colleagues or potential interviewees that my job sucks? (laughs) And this, I think, is tough and it depends on your situation. But also, I think this is a situation a lot of us have been in, right? And it's a little bit made more murky if you're on the interview committee, right? Because if your friend calls you from PA school, someone you went to school with and says, hey, I'm thinking about taking a job with your group. What do you think? In that sort of candid conversation outside of the bounds of I'm at work and I'm interviewing you, you can be a little more forthcoming with what you say. So that golden rule, remember that one from kindergarten, treat others the way that you want to be treated. I think that applies here. And if you were that interviewee, you would probably want a little bit of a heads up, like, hey, it's a little toxic here, just so you know. And they're an adult. They can decide to take this job or not. Um, If your job is truly toxic and terrible, would you have wanted to know before you got hired so that you could make that educated decision based on that information? Also, if you're going to share something that's not super positive about your current position, 
you have to figure out a way to do that that is above board with your current employer. So even if you're not involved um, with the interview process, you may, you know, get pulled in, hey, so-and-so is touring the office and they may say, like, do you like it? Um, And you can say, like, these are the things that I like. These are some challenges that we're facing. You know, we're having a hard time with staffing, which is burdening the current staff. Like you can say it in a way that's not super disparaging. So regardless of whether you're involved in the interview process, Uh, process or not, it's reasonable for you to be honest and straightforward about these specific challenges that you're facing in your workplace. So if management is hard to deal with, if the schedule is heavy, if there's a personality that can be challenging, it's okay to say those things. And I think the less specific you are, like saying, you know, some of the docs are great to work with. There are a couple that you have to tiptoe around or, you know, you know, you don't say like Dr. Smith is a jerk, right? <laughs> like you, you sort of say it and, and you kind of say it in a way that's respectful and honest. I think there is a way to share this information with future hires in a way that is both honest and not disparaging. So this situation where you're interviewing someone is not a situation where you want to air all the dirty laundry and tell them everything that's ever been wrong at your job. But that if you can keep that golden rule top of mind, um, that you want to be both respectful and treat the team and the group and the employer with respect and also be respectful to that interviewee. Can you clearly communicate, and I think this is so important, to the interviewee what the hours and expectations and environment and culture are like in a way that is honest without bashing and disparaging specific people or the organization at large? The other question that I have for the person that submitted this question, like, I hate my job. It's so toxic. It's the worst. I want to, like, you know, say, no, absolutely don't come here to all potential interviewees. If you hate it, why don't you leave? If you are miserable and it's toxic, what plans do you have for moving? And it doesn't have to be you walk in and quit today, but what is your next step? What is your next move? What is the thing that you are looking forward to doing? And how can you position yourself well to make that move down the road? What's your two-year, five-year, 10-year plan? Because if you hate where you are, is that temporary? Is it changing or are you changing? Because something's got to give, right? It's not sustainable to work at a place where you absolutely just like hate going in. It's not a great way to spend your life. It's not a great way to spend your career. One of my very favorite things about being a podcaster is crossing paths with other incredible podcasters. If you love this show, especially when I share about my experience with healthcare burnout and recovery, you're going to want to check out the podcast, Burnout, What I've Learned So Far, hosted by my friend, Meg Letty. Meg is a former CT surgery PA turned advocate for healthcare provider wellness. Turn in to hear how she recovered from burnout and integrated well-being into her life to create a life of dreams, not nightmares. Add burnout, what I have learned so far with Meg Letty to your podcast queue to start your journey to wellness and healing today. All right, next question. Are we sending thank you letters after an interview? I think a quick note of thanks makes for a memorable impression after the interview. I recommend doing an email thank you note, graciously appreciating the team's time, who interviewed you, of the people that you've been communicating with at the office. I also personally love a handwritten thank you note dropped in the mail with specifics about the interview, what you appreciated about the practice or the group or the time they took for you. So let's face it. 
everyone gets a ton of emails. And I would think that HR and hiring managers and recruiters are in that category of people who get a lot of email, probably even more so than we do. A handwritten thank you note makes a lasting impression. They get it physically on their desk. It stands out above all the email messages they see in a day. I also personally love to send like a handwritten note to friends and for birthdays and thank you notes. At a minimum, send an email, bonus points for a handwritten note because gratitude is always in style. Pleasant persistence is a really great way to stay on the radar of recruiters and practice and hiring managers. So continuing to pop up in a kind and grateful way and check in on the status and remind them that you exist is an awesome tactic to make sure you are front of mind when that hiring decision is being made. The next question is, do I take a job or not take a job? This new job requires a move and my family to make some adjustments moving out of state. So I want to keep this relatively vague because I want to preserve the anonymity of the person who asked, but this was sent by a PA who had a job offer in another state. It's something they had been wanting for some time. It sounded like it was highly competitive, like a rigorous interview process, great benefits, a job that they were really potentially professionally interested in, but it required an out-of-state move, obviously a change in school and change in location with their family. So as with any change, they were concerned about associated costs of moving, finding housing, their family being uprooted and getting settled in a new place. So essentially this decision boils down to how do you decide if this chance is worth taking? So here's what I would say to that person. Nothing is permanent. If you move and you don't like it, you don't have to stay forever. And relative to like costs that are incurred, can you ask your future employer to help with a relocation fee to defray the cost of moving and getting settled? Can you and your family get on board with seeing this as an adventure? So the bottom line are the benefits of this position, the career move, your professional fulfillment, something that you want to lean into during this season. This is a super personal decision. But let me tell you my experience. When I was getting ready to leave my position in urology surgery because I was super burned out, I kept thinking, if I walk away, this could be my last chance. My last chance to work on this type of patient or this type of case. My last chance to be in an operating room. My last chance to do surgery. My last chance to do this type of surgery with these specific docs. But ultimately, I did change from that scarcity mindset to one of abundance because that scarcity mindset was holding me back and it was keeping me trapped. That thought that this was the one chance, the one job, the one time or opportunity to do something was keeping me stuck. Instead, I want you to think about all the potential jobs that you could have in your town, in your city, in that state that you've always wanted to move to. Those jobs are out there. So don't make your decision out of fear and scarcity, but rather with optimism and abundance. So if this isn't the time for you to lean into your career, that's okay. This isn't the last opportunity that will come along for that job. As Marie Forleo says, everything is outable. So if this is a job you really want, go for it. And if this isn't the job or the time to make that move for your family, my question to you then is what can you change in your current practice setting or situation to make improvements there. It doesn't have to be this grand sweeping move. It can be small adjustments that make you like your job more, even if you don't move to another state right now. 
you are not stuck. And this isn't the only opportunity for anything. So keep an eye out to make changes in your current position if a big move is not in your future. Next question. What should I be on the lookout for in a non-compete? So we're going to review non-compete guidelines like specialty, duration, and mileage. So let's talk non-compete. This is often something that comes up when we are reviewing contracts and offers in our negotiation consults. In case you didn't know, I do offer negotiation consults for PAs. They are hour-long consults where I give you the answers to all of your questions to that offer that you're debating about or wondering what's missing from. We make a plan for what you want and how to ask for things like an increase in salary, assigning a relocation bonus, the schedule that you want, a less strict non-compete. You walk away with a personalized plan for how to earn a paycheck that you feel really proud of at a job that you love. So I will drop the link to book those negotiation consults in the show notes if that is something that you are interested in or dealing with. Okay, non-competes, sometimes called restrictive covenants. These vary state to state and area to area. There is, it is up for review on a national level, whether non-competes are going to be considered enforceable. I haven't seen anything new about that lately. Non-competes typically specify that you're unable to practice medicine in a specific specialty, in a radius from your hospital or office for a specific period of time. So elements of a non-compete are what you're able to practice. Say you work in primary care. Is it primary care specific? Would you be able to go to an endocrine practice or a GI practice within that radius? The more narrow the scope of practice covered in the non-compete, the better for you because the less restrictive that it is. Where you aren't able to practice, what is the radius? So typically mileage from a location, the location should be specific, your current office address. But be careful because some larger organizations, it will say from any site. Sometimes there's thousands of offices over tons of miles. You need to make sure it's a reasonable radius and reasonable is different depending on if you live in a city, you know, maybe it's a two block radius. If you live out in the country, maybe it's a, you know, 20 mile radius, depends. And then how long the non-compete is active. I've seen a lot that say two years, anywhere from six months to four years. It depends. It's very area dependent. It is always a good idea to get a good employment lawyer in your area to review your contract. They will know your state laws. They should have a finger on the pulse of what they're seeing in your region. They can give you their opinion on specifics for your restrictive covenant and non-compete and give you things that might be missing from that contract from a legal standpoint that can help both to protect you and to protect your future employer. All right, last but certainly not least, I get a lot of questions in my inbox, especially when we have episodes like this where we're talking about negotiation and getting jobs and getting raises, where they say, can I ask for X, Y, or Z as a part of my negotiation? And sometimes it's non-traditional things. Can I ask for an adjusted schedule? Can I negotiate for specific things? What about an increased CME budget for the first two years in practice? How about admin time? How about protecting me from going to satellite offices? Yes, yes, and yes. First of all, you can ask for anything. Second of all, if you're going to go to the trouble for asking, you want to ask effectively. So I have this tool. It's called the PA Pay One Sheet. It's a framework for negotiations. I will link it in the show note. Use it. It's not just for when you're negotiating for a new position or a salary. It can be used for when you want or need anything from anyone. And yes, I do truly mean that. Seriously, you can use this tool to talk to your spouse into taking you out for a date night, 
or your teenager to getting them to clean their room. So tracybeaman.com slash one, O-N-E. The one sheet helps you to clarify what you want. Identify what leverage you have. It helps you to figure out what the other person wants. It gives you specific tools to use in getting from where you are to where you want to be. And whatever you're asking for doesn't have to be conventional. It also doesn't have to be something that anyone else in your practice has ever asked for or gotten before. You can ask for anything and doing it effectively and making it work for the practice for you is the trick when it comes to negotiating. I'm happy to help with that. Use the tool. But also remember that just because no one has ever done it before doesn't mean that you can't be the first one to do it. You are a super valuable member of that team. You are making them tons of money. Leverage that to improve your quality of life. Leverage that to improve your income. Leverage that to improve literally anything. You can negotiate for anything. That is all the questions we have time for today. I hope that this was helpful to you. If you have questions, send us an email, themoneypa at gmail.com and DM on social media. Um, You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Tracy Bingaman there. I hope that these questions are things that you're struggling with. I hope that they helped you. If you found this episode to be helpful, I would so appreciate it if you would head to iTunes and leave a review, give us five stars, share it with a friend, tell other PAs about it so you can spread the good word. I'm not exactly sure if that's an appropriate use of the good word, but this is good words. good encouraging words for PAs. That's all for today. I'll see you next time. As for now, this PA is out. Congratulations. You've just joined an awesome club. By listening to a full episode of the PA is in, you are officially on the Unicorn PA team. Welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episode of the show. The life of your dreams exists on the other side of taking action. Keep making small shifts and keep getting better. Your life will improve, your career will soar, and you will have the confidence you need to create your own success. I will see you in the next episode. This PA is out.